0: Okay, good day everyone, Happy New Year. This is Tom Berger from Keller & Heckman. Welcome to the inaugural 2019 Keller & Heckman Tosca 3030. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Believe it or not, we have about 300 people signed up, so uh, we're very happy about that. We do need to be particularly timely today because our Reach 3030 begins promptly at 135, as one of the chat uh, folks just pointed out. Uh, So hopefully my slides will advance, they did during practice. Uh, So we have three speakers today, uh, myself, let's see if this works, James and Javine, all of whom you probably know from earlier webinars or from working uh, with us. And we're going to be doing uh, what many do this time of year, and that is provide an outlook of what we expect under Tosca in 2019. Um, Given our time constraints today, we likely won't be able to answer any questions during the webinar itself, but certainly feel free to email any or all of us or use the chat feature, and we often can respond after the webinar to the questions you put in the chat. So let's see, okay, so here's the obligatory slide about what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna to talk briefly about the shutdown, and then we're gonna to turn to the substance sections of Tosca and play, and then we'll be uh, providing a brief summary of uh, the ongoing Tosca litigation. Again, always interesting talking to a silent phone but actually I pasted a picture of a crowd right next to my monitor here so I'm looking at a crowd full of people at least a picture of that so we'll see if that helps so far so good okay so this just kind of recasts what I said in the earlier slide this is kind of the you know what we're going to talk about today so I'm going to talk about the first two things in blue uh uh, kind of a changing section five process Uh, Javanet is going to cover the next four bullets which have to do with deadlines and activities under section six That, as she'll discuss, uh, you know, would be difficult to manage even if you didn't have a shutdown. And as I mentioned, Jane is going to talk about uh, uh, some of these so-called framework uh, litigation cases. Boy, we're moving pretty good so far. Okay, Uh, you know, again, I was thrilled to see 300 people signed up. I recognize all sorts of names from from back in the day, many, many years working with you folks. Uh, But I'm sure there's some new folks as well. So for those folks, you know uh here's a kind of a list of of kind of the the major sections of Tosca, and the ones in blue are going to be the sections that we're going to focus on today you know so for example, twelve b export notification is important, but we're not going to be talking about that uh, at least uh, for purposes of of today's webinar. You may have noticed uh that the government is is shut down. Uh, Sure enough, the Friday before Christmas, all all non-essential agency functions were basically put on hold, so we're 18 days into this. Uh, There is a contingency plan that uh, that EPA has, but there's nothing that's TSCA-specific. But if you look at the the plan itself, of 981 Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention personnel, only 24, that's about uh, 2.5%, are accepted or exempted from the furlough, so uh, there's essentially uh, no one there. And it's also important to point out uh, uh, also that uh, uh, if you're not accepted or exempted, you are prohibited from working. So if you leave a voice note from EPA saying, hey, please, please, please call me, I need to talk to you about my PMN, uh, technically they are not allowed to work and answer you. The shutdown is going to affect each section of TOSCA differently, so I'm going to focus on Section 5, as we'll discuss here in a second. Uh, but as Javine and James will talk about, um, uh, this could have a significant impact on some of these statutory le- uh, 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 deadlines under Section 6, uh, et so, uh So the last bullet is going to be kind of a segue into – the first part of my talk, uh, Section 5. So you may recall, and boy, there have been a number of shutdowns since I first started practicing in the early 90s. I know there was one during the Clinton administration. Um, And uh, as an example, uh, an EPA typically does the same thing each time. So in 2013, what EPA did is use Section 5C, Charlie Authority, uh, to provide review period extensions for Section 5 notices. And you may recall that 5C isn't used very often, but basically allows EPA for a quote-unquote good cause to extend the review period for uh, – in parts, if it wants to, for up to 90 days. So uh, one would think uh, the shutdown will be over uh, within 90 days, but again, we're 18 days in. Uh, and so what EPA did in 2013, and I suspect what they'll do here, is that the extension that they will provide will be equal to the length of the shutdown um, – and if you submit something like a PMN during the shutdown, uh, basically it will be received through the CDX system, but nothing's going to happen until EPA operations uh, resumed. And then what you see uh, typically is a federal registered notice after EPA comes back to work. So that is, you know, in a very small nutshell, the shutdown. But in short, uh, there ain't nothing happening uh, at EPA in terms of TOSCA as we speak. Many of you have seen this slide before. Uh, And this is basically the new Section 5 under TOSCA. so we're going to get right to the the heart of the matter here. Uh, You know, if you look here at the left column, that's basically Section 5A, where EPA now has to make an affirmative uh, determination, uh, either an A, B, or C determination. As the red arrow indicates, B is really where all the action is. And then once EPA makes that determination, then you move over here to the right column, where EPA has to take one of these actions. And all the, you know, the hullabaloo that you hear is, is right here in the middle where, you know, under Section 5E, if EPA makes the B determination, it must issue a 5E order to the extent necessary to protect against unreasonable risk. So that's kind of the crux of, uh, of the new uh, Section 5 in a very, very, once again, small nutshell. So much EPA has to make an affirmative determination, and then it must act in a certain way, uh, at least under the plain language of the statute under Section 5E or 5F. Moving right along. Okay, so here's what we really came here to talk about today. Um, so, uh, faced with the increased Section 5 hurdles, EPA essentially, you know, embarked on an evolutionary process in terms of Section 5, both in terms of the data that would be needed to support approval of a Section 5 notice, and the approach EPA would use to basically implement its approval. So what we saw, and I'm down right about here right now, uh, initially after the enactment of the Lautenberg Act in mid-2016, we saw a complete halt in approvals, as most of you probably know, and then EPA moved to a very conservative approach in which, in most cases, it wanted an upfront 90-day inhalation study, and then, beginning here in, I think this was early 2017, seems like yesterday, EPA finished this lung toxicity project uh, where for four large categories of substances, by the way, uh, which many substances fall in, EPA provided a, for a tiered testing approach uh, with off-ramps where, in many cases, simple particle size or quote-unquote biosolubility testing could obviate the need for further testing. So, this lung toxicity project is very important, and we've had a number, had and have a number of clients that have substances in these categories, and and if you do things right and do the right studies in the right order and satisfy certain other criteria on the exposure side of things, you can get uh, your PMN approved. So, that is what happened or or the evolution that we've seen in terms of the data that are required. Now, in terms of the approach, you may recall back in the old days under TOSCA, when you got to the end of a PMN review period and EPA wanted to regulate the substance, EPA did one of two things. Uh, It either A, issued a Section 5E order applicable only to you and then issued a SNR to level the playing field or EPA issued what was called a non-5E SNR, uh, such that there was no 5E order and if it won the Snr issue, it would apply to all companies. Well, given the new statutory language and some other factors, EPA—again, uh, this is some of, a, of an evolutionary process—but currently, at least as of late last year, EPA's approach was to use a non-order Snr. And the non-order Snr is a procedure under which, once the PMN submitter and EPA reach a meeting of the minds, Uh, EPA uh, starts working on a proposed and direct final SNR, uh, and when that is published in the Federal Register, the review period ends at that time, uh, and the C finding is made, and the substance can go on the market. So there's never a 5E order, hence the non-order name. Downside, of course, is that it takes a long time, as we know, for EPA to go through the SNR rulemaking process and unless and until that SNR issues, you cannot manufacture the substance. So if you want speed, you want the traditional 5e approach. And as this bullet indicates, at least as of late last year, EPA was only using the traditional 5e order approach where toxicity testing was required um, under Section 5. So, <laughs> So what do we think is gonna happen in 2019? As I mentioned, um, you know, under this lung toxicity project, um, you can often do some physical property testing, and that will get you a long way in terms of uh, trying to get approval of your PMN. But some of these methods, uh, particularly the biosolubility method, uh, have not been well explained by EPA. Uh, EPA's approach on particle size has also evolved. Uh, but there is a vibrational particle size test that EPA tends to favor. So hopefully we we, we will get some clarity on these test methods uh, sometime in 2019. But if you have any questions about that, come to Octos. But the takeaway here is, uh, again, uh, a, a, a few uh, key physical property tests can get you a long way towards human clearance. Second, as you know, in, what, third or fourth quarter of last year, the first batch of these non-order snares appeared in the Federal Register, uh, and, uh, you know, I'll make a very long story short, and I guess we're waiting to see whether NGOs will sue EPA over, the, over whether uh, the, the, this process uh, is consistent with TOSCA. And then finally, we have, you know, other than specific, you know, chemical snares, we have a number of kind of, you know, more significant snars in the pipeline. And the first one here is, is pretty important here. Actually, in 2016, EPA proposed some revisions to the general snare requirements. Um, and that, at least according to the regulatory agenda, is proposed to be finalized in 2019. And some of these are pretty important. Uh, you know, some of them try to ha- harmonize the requirements with HAZCOM. Um, uh, but another of the um, proposed amendments would allow you to uh, take into account wastewater treatments when calculating surface water concentrations and that can be very very important so so that's uh i am very much looking forward to seeing that notice in the federal register uh the next one here this no this is uh i should have spelled this out forgive me n p e is phenol nonal-finol or phenol ethoxylates. EPA proposed a SNR for those chemicals, uh, kind of a curious SNR there where EPA was uh, attempted to use its SNR authority to essentially address a nomenclature issue. So once again, looking forward to uh, where that one comes out uh, and a few other um uh, Somewhat chemical-specific SNERS, but they cover categories of substances. You know, the PFAS SNER here is notable because it proposes to eliminate the article exemption. The asbestos SNR here, if I recall correctly, is one of these SNERS that EPA uses where a use has been abandoned, and therefore EPA can claim that any resumption of that use is a new use uh, subject to EPA's SNER authority. So we're looking forward to all of those. Turning to uh, one of my favorite subjects, the inventory reset, uh, and I think we all know that if you manufactured or imported an inventory listed chemical between 2006 and 2016 in any amount, then by February 7th of last year, basically, you had to report the substance as active for the inventory unless it was what we call interim active or an NOC had been filed after June of 2006. So um, as again many of you know uh, all sorts of companies had to report all sorts of chemicals for this reset. There was no exemption from polymers. There was no exemption for low concentration substances. There was no exemption for low volume substances uh, etc etc. So uh, covered uh, many many chemicals uh, and uh, caused all sorts of work for our clients. So, and this was called a retrospective reporting. So, uh the plan is, or the, at least the plan was, before the furlough, that in early 2019, EPA is going to publish a revised TOSCA inventory that's gonna have two basic lists. Uh One list of active substances, and one list of inactive substances. Inactive substances are still on the inventory, uh, they're just, as uh, their name suggests, they're just not active. And here's the key. Under the statute, second bullet right here, uh, if and when a substance is designated as inactive, it is a violation of TOSCA to manufacture import or process the substance unless you notify EPA in advance. And this is called forward-looking reporting, where you use this Notice of Activity Form B. Now, one of the important little subtleties here, and this was put in due to comments made by uh one of our coalitions and others is that there's a delayed effective date to these inactive designations—a 90-day date, uh, effective date—and we'll talk about um, uh, some of the ramifications of that uh, in a second. You may recall the total inventory is about 86 or 87 thousand chemicals, and uh, when you look at you know some of the reports that came in and some of the information from the EPA, um, it looks like you know roughly half of the substances uh, will be inactive. So the whole reset active, inactive, is going to affect, if nothing else, a large number of chemicals. Uh, So when do you have to submit a Form B? As I mentioned, uh, well, the statute provides that you have to submit a Form B before you manufacture import a process in inactive substance. And and EPA says, okay, you have to do that. You know, you can't do that two years before you plan to manufacture it. You have to do it no more than 90 days before you intend to manufacture import, or process the substance. But EPA also allows you to submit an NOA Form B during the 90-day period between the identification of the substance as inactive and its effective date. This is kind of a preemptive or transitional NOA Form B. Okay, so a uh, question that we've already dealt with on behalf of a number of clients, what happens if you were supposed to submit an NOA Form A for a substance uh, by February 7th of last year and you didn't do it. Uh, And you have a number of options, uh, and I'm just going to briefly highlight them uh, now. Uh, One is you can submit a late Form A and presumably self disclose noncompliance under EPA's audit policy so they don't penalize you. Um, uh, And and the second option is basically forget about your, you know, uh, uh, noncompliance with the Form A requirement and simply submit a Form B uh, before you manufacture, import, or process it after it formally becomes inactive. Now, of course, if you do that, that doesn't mean you're not subject to liability for your failure to report a Form A. And there's some other subtleties here because as we speak here today, if you go on CDX, uh, you will see that you cannot submit a Form A or a Form B. We're kind of in a limbo period um, between now and when EPA publishes uh, the revised inventory, which at least the last time EPA talked about this, um, they said it would be January of this year. But I think with the shutdown, we're probably looking at February or March. But um, uh, there's a lot more subtleties here, but if you forgot to submit a Form A, and many companies did, uh, you want to act very carefully and probably uh, certainly uh, consult with internal or external counsel. Final slide for me, and then we'll turn it over to Javine. Uh you know, and this is gonna come up next year. What happens if I handle an inactive substance? Let me just check my notes, make sure I don't forget something. Um, you may know that under Section 15.2 of TOSCA, if you, for example, process a substance that's not on the inventory, you only violate TOSCA if you know or have reason to know the substance is not on the inventory. And that's called 15-2 protection. Well, that does not apply to inactive substances. So uh, that's why it's very prudent to act, uh, to request assurances from your suppliers that they're only providing you with active substances. And indeed, you may even want to seek indemn- indemn- <laughs> indemnification from them if they uh, inadvertently provide you with something that is not active. And then finally, unrelated to the reset, uh, and just because it's upcoming deadline here, Polymer exemption reports, if you use the polymer exemption, are due January 31st. Thank you very much, and I'll turn it over to Javine.
1: Thank you, Tom. Uh, Now, we wanted to highlight something on EPA's most recent regulatory agenda, which is uh, potential amendments to the TSCA Chemical Data Reporting Rule, or the CDR Rule. So just as a reminder, under uh, Section 8A of TSCA, it authorizes EPA to promulgate rules requiring Manufacturers to submit reports to EPA about the substances they manufacture. So, the rule requires that every four years, manufacturers provide EPA with information on the production and the use of chemicals in commerce that they produce over certain quantities. So, generally, the volume trigger is 25,000 pounds or greater for a specific reporting year and 2,500 pounds or greater for substances that are subject to certain TOSCA actions. So, in 2019, EPA announced that it's considering proposing changes to the CDR rule. So this regulatory action, it follows an attempt that EPA made back in 2017 to work on a negotiated rulemaking to revise the rule, but those efforts uh, were not successful. So this proposed rule, uh, it it was actually uh, scheduled to come out in December, but it has yet to be released, perhaps due to the shutdown. So uh, the rule is supposed to be promulgated uh, a final rule uh, by October of this year, according to the regulatory agenda. So, overall, EPA, what they want to do is revise the rule to better align with the Lautenberg Act's requirements, including specifically addressing reporting obligations for inorganic byproducts so when the byproducts are subsequently recycled, reused, or reprocessed. So, uh, industry and NGOs over the past couple of years have put forth different ideas for how the CDR rule should be revised, uh, but we'll have to see what EPA proposes here in the near future. And whatever changes are promulgated in this next rulemaking, it's going to impact uh, the next reporting period in 2020. Um, EPA is also going to be very busy in 2019 with draft uh, chemical risk evaluations as required uh, under the Lautenberg Act, under Section 6 of TSCA. So uh, as you all know, based on our most recent at 3030, EPA has already published the Draft Risk Evaluation for Pigment Violet 29, and this was at the, at the end of last year. So this is the first uh, draft risk evaluation for the first 10 chemicals, which has come out. Uh, the peer review for the draft risk evaluation is supposed to be at the end of the month, and then comments are due in response to this draft risk evaluation by January 14th. So, So this year, uh, EPA is supposed to release uh, the other nine draft risk evaluations. And based on a recent letter from Acting Administrator Wheeler uh, to Senator Carper, uh, he noted that EPA pledges to stagger the releases of these risk evaluations and allow for at least a 68 comment period to give people enough time to actually respond to each one individually. And then a final Risk evaluations for these substances are supposed to be completed by December 2019. So EPA has a lot of work to do this year. Uh, as you know, the timeline for risk evaluations is very short. Uh, it's uh, The risk evaluation must be completed within three years of initiation. So since the first 10 were released back in December 2016, they have until December 2019 to get this work done. Now, given the shutdown, these draft risk evaluations are Obviously, delayed, which will put a strain on EPA's ability to meet these statutory deadlines. So, um, EPA also has several uh, risk management rules that uh, are in the queue, and uh, that, that these are listed on the slide here. So, back in 2017, EPA proposed risk management rules for methylene chloride and NMPs in commercial and consumer paint coating removal. TCE in vapor degreasing and TCE in aerosol degreasing and spot cleaning and dry cleaning facilities. Now, uh, the status of the TCE rulemakings are that they are on EPA's long-term actions list. So, uh, and so, uh, but we do know that based on EPA's regulatory agenda, the methylene chloride rulemaking uh, was actually supposed to come out in December of 2018. Uh, now, it is likely that the, the shutdown has delayed the release of this rule as well. Uh, and as for NMP, uh, NMP and paint and coating removal was initially proposed along with methylene chloride. The EPA announced that it intends to address NMP's uses in paint coating removal uh, in the risk evaluation for NMP. And they're going to consider any risk reduction requirements in a separate regulatory action. Uh EPA is also going to be extremely busy this year, not only with risk evaluations, but also chemical prioritization. So recall, under the Lautenberg Act, within three and a half years of enactment, EPA is supposed to have uh, designated 20 high-priority and 20 low-priority substances. So that means by December 2019, EPA uh, must have designated 20 high and 20 low-priority chemicals. So Um, Also, remember that for prioritization, uh, the prioritization process, by statute, it's between nine and 12 months. So, so within that timeline, EPA needs to initiate the prioritization process um, for these chemicals by March of 2019. So, between now and March of 2019, we should be seeing EPA nominating chemicals for prioritization. Uh, Now, a chemical will be... uh, Uh, just as a reminder for what the requirements are for high- and low-priority designations. Uh, Chemical will be designated a high-priority if the substance may present an unreasonable risk under the conditions of use without consideration of cost or other non-risk factors and considering potentially exposed or susceptible subpopulations. And then low-priority substances are just substances that do not meet this standard. So the list of candidate chemicals for prioritization will be created based on EPA's working approach for identifying potential candidate chemicals for prioritization which was released last year um, so uh, EPA's obviously got they, they have a lot of uh, information they need to review they've also opened it, they opened uh, dockets for the public to weigh in on the uh, remaining 73 work plan chemicals and so there's a lot of information EPA is going to have to collect and review as part of the uh, uh, the nomination process for prioritization, um, and I won't go through this in detail, but this is just a reminder of the timeline for prioritization, including opportunities for comments um, and when proposed and final designations should come out. So again, between between now and March, we should uh, see Federal Register notices uh, nominate, nominating potential chemicals for prioritization, and then before December 2019, we should receive these final designations. Um, And then we also have a useful graphic that illustrates the process, but what I wouldn't particularly pay attention to is at the top, we identify opportunities where industry can uh, participate and submit use hazard and exposure data for consideration in the prioritization process. Um, And then finally, with with respect to CBI, um, EPA is also included on its regulatory agenda that it plans to release it's a plan on retrospective review of CVI claims. So, so the Lautenberg Act requires, uh, uh it, they're required to, uh, issue a final rule within a year of compiling the list of active substances on the Tosca inventory, uh, that establishes a plan to review all claims to protect, uh, specific chemical identities of chemical substances on the confidential portion of the active inventory. So EPA has to release this, uh, this plan and it's going to, um, establish what manufacturers, uh, how they're supposed to substantiate these claims, unless the manufacturer or processor has already substantiated the claim in uh, a submission to EPA during the previous previous five-year period. Uh, so that proposed rule is expected to come out any day now. Uh, also based on a letter from Acting Administrator Wheeler uh, to Senator Carper, EPA also is going to be reporting to Congress on how the agency is complying with the CBI provisions of the Lautenberg Act within 180 days. So that's what to expect uh, in the CDI area this year. Um, now I'm going to turn it over to James.
2: Okay. Thank you, uh, Javan. So uh, Tom mentioned I was going to focus on for, with respect to uh, PFAS, this is plurifluoralkyl substances. They have been very much uh, a focus of EPA activity over the past year. The TOSCA the aspect of this is, is limited uh principally to the uh, the reproposal or supplemental proposal for the twenty fifteen SNERRS. Tom mentioned and and as he said it's particularly significant because it's going it's gonna be directed at PFAS and articles. Um there's extensive comment in twenty fifteen principally focused on the, the number of applications where these useful chemistries are continued to be used um in in articles. So This will be something that uh, is going to affect a lot of different industries and and something to watch. Uh, I just want to now just briefly mention the the two uh, litigation challenges that are still pending on uh, the the framework rules uh, coming out of the Lautenberg Act amendments. most of the activity, most of the preparatory activity of these is done. The first were two challenges, to one to the prioritization and the other to the risk evaluation rules, which have been consolidated together. A number of challenges to both rules uh, in the Ninth Circuit. All the briefing is done. Uh, oral argument has not yet been scheduled. So we expect that will happen in 2019 with a decision in 2019 or 2020. Um, in the meantime, you know the EPA is is moving on, as as Jean-Marie was describing, in actually implementing these rules. and And then the key issue in those in that litigation is is really is the extent of EPA's ability to choose which conditions of use, its flexibility in selecting which conditions of use go through the risk evaluation process. The other is a a challenge to the inventory reset rule. We thought that was over. Uh, The the, the challenge there is is focused on uh, the the CBI protections there, and and the question being whether uh, EPA can preserve CBI claims for chemicals either that weren't noticed as being active, so they're inactive claims, or where where someone other than the original submitter is trying to submit the CBI, assert the CBI claim um after the fact and there's arguments about whether that uh is, is permissible so the, the briefing and, and oral argument are completed uh in that case and we expect a decision in in uh sometime this year and that i think it sort of wraps up with one minute to spare uh, just in time uh where we as, uh, as we mentioned we have our reach 3030 coming up uh immediately after this so if you're if you want to participate in that you need to Sign off this, and then re-sign in to be uh, to be properly connected. And uh, with that, so we invite you. So our next our next task of 3030 will be on, on the 13th. Uh, and but I also want to sort of point out that we do, in addition to the reach 3030, we also do these presentations periodically, both in uh, OSHA and in fit for matters as well. So thank you for your attention.